ahead. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we ask for your presence among us. We ask uh, that your spirit would be here, that your spirit would be guiding us, that as we discuss theology proper and we dive into uh, the way in which you have made yourself known as we dive into who you are uh, lord if there are things that that you have already shown us that you have already taught us and that we are hearing again help us just to marvel yet again at who you are and for those things that are new for those things that uh, we have not been exposed to much. Oh, Lord, help us to understand that we may grow in the knowledge of you, that we would ascertain and, and understand the absolute necessity of knowing you. Uh, Father, would you be among us uh, this day as we worship you in your name? Amen. So as you may have heard, uh, we're going to be looking at theology proper, and I'm sure there were some who would have thought that, hey, sweet, we're going to get into theology proper. That means we're going to be dealing with some systematic theology, right, for those that like systematics. Um, and that is true. Uh, we are going to get into systematics, but it's not necessarily going to be a strict systematic, you know, layout. If you, you know, systematics is going to be really, you know, diving into all of the nitty-gritty points of theology proper and, and uh, so forth. We will be looking at different aspects of that, but... Um, Really, our aim, our approach is going to be a little bit more holistic, if you will, looking at um, some historical theology. How is it that the Reformers, um, you know, looked at theology proper? Uh, what view did they have? How did that shape their understanding? How did that shape what they taught? How did that shape what they live? Um, it is a vast topic, and so um, we obviously won't be able to get to every single aspect of theology proper. So, the way I look at laying this out really over the next um, four weeks is this week looking specifically at the knowledge of God. I think we definitely need to start there. And so under that, we will be looking at the, the possibility of knowing God, the necessity of knowing God, and the means of knowing God. That is essentially kind of how we'll break that down. And then I know like sometimes I get text messages. It's like, hey, brother, what are you going to be teaching on? So here's the next three weeks after that, okay? For those of you that want to prepare and kind of think ahead, next week, Lord willing, the plan is the majesty of God. Uh, under that, we will look at his transcendence, his holiness, and his glory. Uh, the third week then will be the sovereignty of God in which we will look at his decree and the various things that relate to that, you know, uh, predestination, election, um, so forth and so on. And then the, the fourth week, I kind of hope to bring it full circle. It's like, okay, we've studied all these different things. Um, what does that mean ultimately for our life? What did it mean for the reformer's life? And so really we're going to look at the theocentricity of the reformed faith, meaning there is a God-centered focus to the reformed faith, the reformed life. It's not just a profession. It's not just knowledge and, and so forth, okay? Theocentricity, yeah. Just God-centered, I guess, is the easier way to say it if we're just going to boil it down. So before we dive into the, essentially the points that um, you know, I have laid out, we should probably at least define you know, what is you know, theology proper. It's not necessarily you know, phrased the way that we typically talk today. So what is theology proper? Yeah, I think like, that's a 
perfect like summary level doctrine of God, right, is, a, is another way um, that it's referred to. The doctrine of God, um, really the idea here is that um, under that we have various headings that, you know, theologians have gone back and forth on, on what falls under this category. Um, often, like what you will see is that it is things that relate to his nature, um, his sovereignty, his names, his attributes, his decree, um, essentially who he is. Um, and so these are all the different areas that fall under the doctrine of God. Um, we will not be able to cover every single one of those in its totality. Um, I will hit on different aspects of them uh, in particular um, as we move through this. So when we think of knowing God and, and, and the doctrine of God, how is it that this doctrine is different from a Reformed perspective? Um, because this is a Reformed, like, foundations-type series as far as what sets the Reformed faith apart from, you know, the other denominations and the other professions and things of that nature, right? Um, because don't other denominations have a doctrine of God? They do, and what you will find is that these other denominations will readily agree with, well, we believe God's attributes, and we know his names, and um, we affirm, like, his nature, his sovereignty, right? So what is it that differentiates the Reformed tradition from all others, if you will? Yeah, so... Yeah, when it comes to the doctrine of God um, and so forth, right, that's what it is. They see it as the heart of Christian theology. It is that doctrine that is the foundation, really, for anything else that we study. You would better have a sound doctrine of God, right, to ensure that you're sound in everything else you study and in the way that you live. Um, we'll get into this probably in the fourth class, but you guys have heard... Cor, uh, Coram Deo. For the reformers, that was essential. They viewed everything that they did like before the eyes of God. He sees everything. He knows all. Nothing is hidden. And therefore, it's like you study the doctrine of God and like we've said, that informs everything that you do. The way that you live, the way that you think. Um, and it informs ultimately how you understand uh, his word. They saw that the character of God um, was pervasive in every aspect of the theology that they worked through. Uh, they saw the foundation of religion being the very character of God. That's it. Um, and this is what drove them in their pursuit to know God. And not only to know God, but then their pursuit of holiness. Uh, and so what they saw is, uh, you know, our first point, which is uh, the necessity of knowing God, of knowing who he is. There was a, that was a necessity for them. There's a lot of people in this world that will claim, oh, I know God. But it's not a necessity. They don't see it as a necessity. It's not a, a, a primary focus for them. It's not a pursuit for them. It's just a claim. For the reformers, 
They took it extremely seriously. And so that's what you see ultimately in their writings is this focus on the necessity of knowing God. And I believe this necessity breaks down in two ways. There is a theological necessity and there's a practical necessity. These are the two ways I've kind of like broken it down um, as far as how to understand the necessity of knowing God. Why is there a theological um, you know, perspective, if you will, or a need uh, to knowing God, to that necessity? Mm. Um, knowing God theologically, doctrinally, you know, is really going to shape how you live your life. Yeah, so we'll get into that that part of it too on the practical side because that's what we always say. You know, before I was saved, for me it was I studied Reformed theology like ten years before I was ever saved, and it was head knowledge. So you can like make a quick point, you know what people are saying, you know where they're going, whatever it is. It never led to the practical until I was saved. Um, because that's what it should do. That's what doctrine should ultimately do is drive how we live. And so, you know, one of the ways I looked at it was um, as far as like the doctrine of God and the necessity of knowing God, it's the way that we know anything it's the way that we know anything is by knowing who God is. This is even how Calvin starts his Institutes of the Christian Religion. The first chapter is titled Knowledge of God the Creator. And the two headings, the first two headings, is the, without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And the second heading, without the knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And you may say, well, why self first and so forth. He does clarify towards the end that obviously the way that you need to study him is first the knowledge of God leading to knowledge of self. But his point in the first um, statement is that as we contemplate ourselves, there's, it's impossible for us to look upward to God. Why? Well, because we see in ourselves all these different gifts and abilities um, you know, that ultimately, as uh, Greg Allison puts it in his historical theology book, he says, we are inevitably drawn to the conclusion that these blessings have been bestowed on us by a loving, caring creator. So it's like as we see the different things, right, we're thinking like, where did these come from? Well, they had to come from a creator. But like he says, there's no knowledge of self without the knowledge of God. Calvin says this, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's faith and then descends, then descends from contemplation of him to scrutinize himself. Right? That's the standard. It's who is God and then who am I in relation to that. And the reason this is necessary is because if we just look at ourselves, how do we generally view ourselves? Good. That's right. We think we're good. We think we're righteous. Everybody else does everything wrong. We do everything right. Especially outside of our eyes being opened by the Spirit. Even when our eyes have been opened, 
we can still, still tend to think like we're okay, we're not as bad as, you know, so-and-so. Outside of that even, the way the world thinks, they think that they're fine. And so as Van Til says, if you remember from the classes we've been going through there, he says, if man is created, it must be that he is absolutely dependent upon his relationship to God for the meaning of his existence in every aspect. You want to know why you're here living? Then you need to know God. There's a necessity to know God. Secondly, the way that we know God and so forth leads to our corporate worship. It leads to how we worship. It leads to the importance of worship. And I'm not just talking only singing. I'm talking about everything that we do corporately to worship God. It's his, the way that he has revealed himself, the way he has made himself known, ought to inform how we worship. The worship of God is not some random disorganized approach and how we want to do it. Remember when that happened in the Old Testament with Nadab and Abihu? What happened to them? Done. They wanted to get, you know, they wanted to play footloose with the sacrifices and how they were handling everything. Struck dead. And unfortunately, a lot of what takes place in, under the heading of Christianity today when it comes to the worship of God, remember, not just singing, but the way that services are conducted and the activities that take place, um, the, the Lord's not necessarily striking people dead today, right? <laughs> but he does have a day in which those things will be recompensed. It may seem like it's not a big deal now, like it was back with Nadab and Abihu, but it will be when he returns and they stand before him. And so corporate worship is nothing to mess around with. There is definitive content and substance to our worship. He has told us how he wants to be worshipped. He has told us who he is. He has told us that he is worthy of worship. And so Calvin and others, the, the different you know, Westminster divines and so forth, formulated what has come to be known as the regulative principle. How many people have heard of the regulative principle before? So, decent amount. What is it? Like, yeah, prohibited. So if it's not prohibited, do it. You want to have your little felt art stuff and dramas and all that stuff on the stage? Well, it's not explicitly prohibited. Do it. Whereas the regular principle says, no, um, corporate worship of God must be according to what he has specifically expressed in Scripture. This is actually what we read. Now, I'm not confessional per se. I don't hold to a confession. But this is what the 1689 says. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So that's that aspect. He's prescribed it. That's how you do it. And so this is what you see if you think about this. This stems from 
what you see of how the tabernacle was to be built, how the temple was to be built, what the priests were to wear. It was all according to the pattern that was shown them. Um, there were very specific characteristics that had to be present. Same thing in the New Testament. What do we see in the New Testament listed? Because you think, okay, that's Old Testament. What about New when it comes to the worship of God? Singing, right? We can all agree on that. Um, preaching, teaching, uh, public reading of Scripture. Those are the different things that we see. So for the Reformers, there was a seriousness. The Reformed tradition has a seriousness when it comes to corporate worship. That's why you don't see when we're doing our services, it's, there's an order to it. Uh, there's a specificity to it. Um, it is something that um, we need to make sure that we have the proper view of as well. It's not just walk in there. That's why even like what Amelia was saying last week, to prepare ourselves. This isn't just walk in, okay, I did my thing and I'm out. It's not it. We're coming to worship the holy God. And hopefully as we move through these different things, I said, you know, knowledge of God, majesty of God, sovereignty of God, whether we know those things already or not, hopefully it spurs up in us a desire to know him and to worship him. Because that is what ultimately we are created to do, is to worship God, to give glory to God. The final one, at least as I've identified it for today on, on the theological side, is uh, to protect us from error. You need to be sound in your doctrine of God so you don't stray. All error will stem from having an incorrect doctrine of who God is. I know this is very straightforward. Uh, that's probably it's an obvious statement, but here's what we see in 2 Peter 3.17. He says this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Here's how they're to do that. You don't want to be carried away by unprincipled men and untaught men, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you keep yourself from error, is to be sound in your understanding of the doctrine of God and of knowing God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of God, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we need theological prowess. We need to understand that this prowess finds itself in the foundation of knowing God, who he is. This is what it was for the reformers. This is why they built the doctrines and developed the doctrines that they did. They specifically stated them. So it was very clear what they held to. Not that some of what they came up with didn't exist you know, beforehand and so forth, but they developed it uh, more fully uh, for the purpose of keeping themselves from error. But there's also, as we said, a practical aspect. Uh, this leads to practical realities in our lives. As, as K-Dub said, it's like this informs over here, right? It leads to practical realities in our actions. I think we all agree with that. But even more specifically, I was trying to think about the way to say this, but it's like the way that we think when circumstances arise that are ad adverse to us or are hard, we're not necessarily acting a certain way. But how are we thinking about those things that we're experiencing? 
Do we see them under the sovereignty of God? Do we see him as being in control of all things? You see, so it's not always just actions, but it's even the way that you are meditating and thinking about things. When you're stirred up in your mind about what has happened to you or what is potential to happen to you, do you think according to how you know God and what you know of God? Because that's where the rubber meets the road at the end of the day. You can profess to know all these things, and then a trial comes, an affliction comes. And then where is the sovereignty of God that you claim to hold steadfast to? So as we said earlier, it's not doctrine for doctrine's sake. It's not a mere puffing up with knowledge. Um, There is an intellectual aspect to this, so we cannot deny that. That's not bad. But it is bad if it's only that. It should be knowledge that leads to radical transformation. This is what it did for the reformers. If we lived like the reformers and if we lived like the Puritans, I'm not advocating every single thing that they did, but people would think we've lost our mind. We would not fit in this culture as it stands today if we took what they saw as the doctrine of God and how it should inform our lives and we live that way, good luck being able to like go anywhere and have a conversation with somebody because <laughs> they would be like, you're crazy. What's an example that you're referring to? It seems to me like we already don't fit in culture. Well, we don't, but I'm saying like back then, I mean, just every discussion, at least the way I picture it in my mind, is, I mean, was Godward. There's none of this, you know, football and basketball I mean they may have I'm sure they had like some I'm not saying they never had any casual conversation but I'm saying they were so focused uh, the way that they led their families and and were raising their children and caring for their wives and I mean all of that was just it was a holy focus and I think what happens especially in America we have it too easy we're not really facing persecution on any grand scale Um, And it's interesting enough where you see like true faith flourishing, it's where there's persecution. And that's what you saw then as well. Um, So, I mean, mean, that's just, you know, off the top of my head. I mean, I don't have one instance in mind. I'm saying that if you look at the way they wrote and, and the things that they wrote about, you know, doctrine of repentance by Watson and so forth. I mean, read any of the, the Puritan writers and there is just, a, I mean, you can see where they're taking Scripture and they're meditating on Scripture and they're breaking it down to practical levels. You know, three points on this and then three points on that. And then it's like, next thing you know, like eight points on like this one, you know, that's how they thought through things. It wasn't just, okay, I can regurgitate this point about the doctrine of God. It was, man, if this is true, then, oh, I got to change this, 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 and this is, you know, all of it. So... This is what Beaky states. He states, God's people derive their faith, hope, and love from their understanding of who God is and how he works in the world. That should guide, I mean, when we see the, 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 the calamities that take place weather-wise or earthquakes and so forth, I mean, we should be able to look at that and interpret that according to how God has revealed himself and what he has said about sin and the earth groaning even now and waiting for the return of Christ. And that's a picture of the judgment of God to come and so forth. I mean, do we see like, the, the day-to-day things that take place in light of what Scripture says? 
So what does this look like? Well, back again in 2 Peter, this is what we see. Do you want to live a godly life? Is that what you truly desire? Then grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Do you want to um, grow in grace and peace? Then grow in the grace and knowledge of God. This is what Peter lays out in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 of his second letter. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. So it's as if the knowledge of God is the conduit through which we grow in grace and peace, through which we are pursuing godliness and are made more like him. Growth in these areas is fostered through the knowledge of God. The more we know about God, the more practically we can live out the will of God for our lives. The more we know about him, the more practically we're living out his will for us daily. But in addition to this, and this was, um, I got some of this from Sproul, and the way that, you know how Sproul is, the way he writes is just phenomenal. Anyway, thinking about different times in which you see God as having shown himself to people in the Bible. Moses, Abraham, uh, Job, Isaiah. I mean, there's plenty of examples. But if we just consider Moses and his encounter with the Lord at the burning bush, it is here that God reveals his covenant name and his covenant faithfulness. I don't have the time to get into that. I hope to maybe as we look at his transcendence next week. But when he says, I am, or as we also read that, Yahweh, that is a full disclosure of his sovereignty, his self-existence, his independence. Nobody else says I am without predicating it with some other descriptive term about who they are. He says it because he exists. He says it because he's sovereign. But also in his uh, revelation to Moses, it's I will be with you. And so we see his covenant faithfulness. Isaiah Right When he saw in chapter 6, the pre-incarnate Christ, Sproul describes it as one of the most vivid disclosures of divine holiness in all of Scripture. These are two brief examples, but here's what we see. These are pivotal moments in each of their lives. Moments that like the world would say, just tell me everything's going to be okay. Tell me everything's going to be fine. But that's not what they get. They didn't get the promise of success and that all was going to be well. In fact, Moses was told, you're going to go to Pharaoh and he's going to harden his heart. Isaiah was told, you're going to be preaching this message and people aren't going to listen. This is what uh, Sproul says. Sproul says this, it wasn't the promise of success that they needed. No, what they needed was an understanding of the Lord's character. When God wanted to give them assurance, he gave them himself. Like that ties back to when things happen in our life. It's like we don't need to be told necessarily it's going to be okay from like a worldly perspective. Because it may not be. When we face trials and tribulations and difficulties and family issues, that's all uncertainty. But you know who is certain? God. 
You know who never changes? God. You know who is sovereign? God. That's why we need to know God. We need a sound doctrine of God. That's why there's a necessity of knowing who he is. And so on a surface level, across various denominations and traditions, we certainly find that there is a common assent to the doctrine of God. We believe his attributes. We believe he's sure. We believe he's sovereign. But when it comes to the reformers, the Puritans, that tradition as a whole, it wasn't just a mere assent to the importance of those things. But there was a necessity for them. So this led to deep, serious, solemn, theological, and practical approach that separates you know, what we hold to as Reformed or Calvinistic to how we view God's Word, how we study God's Word, how we seek to know Him. So what is it to know the Lord? We're talking about the necessity of knowing God. What is it to know the Lord? Well, it's the height of human existence. There's no greater thing that we can do than to know the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, thus says the Lord, this is what the world does, right? He says, let not wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. That's what the world says value is. But he says, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That's it. What's amazing, though, he didn't just say, and knows me, but he says that I am the Lord, covenant name, capital L-O-R-D, that I am the Lord. When we read that word in Scripture, there should be such assurance and confidence because this is, this is the Lord, the I am, the self-existent one, the one who sustains all things. But he says, I am the Lord. And then now look, he describes himself who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. You see, even there he discloses who he is. And this is what Paul, this is what it was for Paul, Philippians 3, 7 through 8, right? All those things that were gained to him that he previously had put his hope in and saw value in, gone. Loss. Compared to what? The surpassing value. It's not even just value. It's surpassing value of knowing the Lord. Do we value knowledge of the Lord the same way? Is it important to us? What else is it? It is eternal life. This is what we read in John 73. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What else is it? It's his covenant promise and covenant fulfillment. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Right, what does he say? I will be their God and they will be my people. Right, they shall know me from the least to the greatest. That is the covenant promise and the covenant fulfillment in Christ. That we can now know God. And so as much as there is a necessity, we have to discuss the possibility of knowing God. How is it possible? Possibility that we know God, or that we can know God. See, many in the world say it's you know you know all the philosophical 
well, he's not knowable because, well, we're matter and we're evil and, okay? And they claim that he can't be known, that he is so far transcendent, so far above us, so otherly that it's not possible for us to know him. And that would be true from, like, man's perspective. That would be true if he didn't reveal himself. That's the key to the possibility of knowing God is that he has not left himself unknown. That's why you think about, you know, Paul in Acts 17, right? They have this thing to the unknown God. He says, oh, what you say is unknown? I'm here to make known because he has made himself known. And so that's the undeniable fact that he has revealed himself. This is what Joel Beakey says. I love it. He says this, Christian theology arises from God's pursuit of man. It's not the other way around. It's not that we're looking for God. It's not because we want to know who he is. It's because he has disclosed himself. He has made himself known. And that is essential to understand. God condescends. He breaks into time and shows himself forth. And so the only reason we know anything is because he's revealed himself. I mean, that should... You know, as I was studying this and just thinking about that reality, that a sinful man, what I truly deserve is the wrath of God. And when man sinned, he didn't owe man anything to reveal himself and so forth, but he did. He's a God, a, a relational God. He is a God who communicates and God, a God who makes himself known. And it's, that should blow our minds that the one who is sustaining everything right now as we sit here like desires to commune with us. That is phenomenal. That he would make himself known and tell us in ways that we can understand. Create us in ways that we can uniquely receive his revelation as opposed to animals and so forth with us being created in the image of God. And so along those lines, as much as a finite person can understand the infinite, this is what Luther says, God lowers himself to the level of our weak comprehension and presents himself to us. It's like, behold, you're God, okay? In simplicity adapted to a child, that in some measure it may be possible for him to be known by us. You think of all the ways in which he reveals himself to us, and we'll get into this here as far as what his revelation consists of. But the ways in which he's done that, you have the infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, holy God, the creator of all things visible and invisible, revealing himself to us, desiring to be with us, that we can know him. But when it comes to... um, the knowledge of God and knowing him and the possibility to know him, what type of knowledge is necessary? It's not just any type of knowledge. Um, It is not according to our human reasoning and emotions. It's not according to tradition like the Roman Catholic Church and really a lot of the control that they tried to to hold over, um, you know, the church at that time where they were like the dispensers and people you know, didn't study on their own, they didn't read on their own. Um, It's not tradition, it's not human reasoning and emotions, it's not, as we see in our day, experience-driven. 
We don't have to fashion a God according to our own thoughts or desires. He has revealed himself in various ways that we need not wonder who he is in that sense. We don't need to, you know, manufacture, I think it's like this. That is always the presentation in Scripture between idols and the li- It's like, they're dead, he's alive. They know nothing, he knows everything. And what does he ultimately come to? He's like, what are you doing? We've looked at Isaiah before, at least in the men's study, where it's like, you know, you're cooking on with one part of the wood, and then the other part, you're making an idol. Like, what? <laughs> it's, so it's not according to, that just shows you where our minds go, where our knowledge and reasoning goes, and why we need it. God to reveal himself. So what are the ways in which he has revealed himself? Like, let's just think like main, main headings first. Yes, main headings first. <laughs> yeah, natural or general. You've got to be careful with like the use of natural, I suppose, if we're going to get real specific. But yeah, general, natural revelation in creation, Right? Um, creation um, that is even how scripture starts in the beginning God created that's how he's revealed himself uh, in a general way to all mankind it involves obviously the creation of man and his image um, there's also what other type of revelation which we'll get into each of these in some depth a little special revelation and it's through this that salvation is then revealed. Okay? General revelation is good for what? Yeah, proclaiming the, the reality that God exists and he is created and he is there and, and so forth. Special revelation is needed. Why? What doesn't general revelation do? What's that? Well, it doesn't lead to salvation, and it also doesn't do what? Yeah. Well, we can, we can know the true God in the sense that he, we see his attributes and his divine glory and so forth. But what did you say? Oh. It doesn't produce repentance. So, okay, here's the third one that we're not going to be able to get into. But some of these guys have called out what they call applied revelation. The applied revelation is where the Spirit works and gives you understanding to what we truly see in each of the ways. This isn't new revelation. This is our eyes being opened to understanding what we see in creation and then what we see from a a special revelation perspective. So special revelation does what general revelation doesn't do, and that tells us, yes, how to be saved. We don't see from general revelation that we are sinful. You don't look at a tree and think, I'm sinful. You don't look at the stars and think, I'm sinful. But you get into God's word and you study who he is and you see what he is, has, has, has said about who we are. I'm sinful. So applied revelation is really just the Spirit then working to properly understand each of these because the world sees this and the world can read this and still not f- properly grasp it. I've often heard, though, that like under general revelation is the, um, the aspect of the law being written on our hearts. Mm. Man knows not to go and 
Mm -hmm. Why is it that that's a universal law? Mm -hmm. So are you making a distinction that that would maybe fall into special? No, I'm saying we can have, obviously, like what we see in scriptures, I mean, the law being created in the image of God, we do have a conscience. We know right from wrong. Um, but what I'm saying specifically, knowing I'm a, you know, I'm a sinner, right? You know, that comes from um, specially, special revelation in, in scripture, the identification of that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So that's why that's the applied aspect to where when we understand properly through the Spirit opening our eyes, we see these as they're truly meant to be seen. Maybe I've, I've understood the special to be more, you're talking about like salvation, of understanding like how to be saved. Because sometimes I feel like, I mean, if it is written in our hearts, you can, you can tell you're a sinner because you naturally know you're doing something wrong. Well, we're talking about, so... So from a special revelation perspective, what we're talking about here is like supernatural. The sp spirit or the different ways, like what are different categories under special revelation that you can think of? God's word, right? You can think of theophanies, uh, visions. Yeah, so, so along those lines, so you have the incarnation down here. You have... Um, Verbal, which is going to be speaking to them. Um, you're going to have visual, and you're going to have providential. These are like four categories that you can break down special revelation. I get the point that you're making on the general side. Um, you may know that it's, I guess you can know that it's wrong because you have the law written on your heart. Um, but I'm thinking specifically from a, it being said, you're not seeing from creation itself, uh, you know, this, the, the universe and the trees and so forth, like, that, you're, that you're a sinner, that you need to repent and so forth. Yeah, that's where the, rev this, this is where, you know, this is expounded upon. One writer, I think it might have been Vivink, and I don't like the language he used, but he says there's like a defect in general revelation. I don't like thinking there's a defect in any of God's, I think it fulfills its purpose and that special re revelation is needed. Um, but that is what you need where he is revealing. He's saying, thus says the Lord this or thus says the Lord that. Um, he is showing himself forth visually to people. That's different ways in which he manifested and made himself known. Um, and that's what one writer noted, like from a verbal perspective um there's over uh, i just got to see here actually from my notes 400 times the phrase thus saith the lord appears and uh, or the words of the lord came more than 300 times just shows i mean how i mean uh you know how much he was revealing himself is just phenomenal um but when we think of general revelation we obviously know Psalm 19, uh, 1 through 6, about the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor other words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out to all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Similarly, uh, we all know Romans 1, 18 through 20, um, where 
For since creation uh, of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, and that's where you're talking, they suppress that truth. What is the purpose of general revelation? Well, it does leave with without excuse. Um, so there's that aspect in which it leaves us without excuse. But I'm saying even now, general revelation hasn't ceased. Every day, we wake up with amazing sunrises. We go to bed with amazing sunsets. We walk out and we see the stars and we see the, the moon and so forth. What, is, I mean, what does that lead us to? What should it lead us to? Worship. Does it? Or has it become mundane to us? It can. Listen to Psalm uh, 95, 1 through 6, just along these lines. Psalm 95, 1 through 6. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him who, uh, with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains all are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. And then it says, and we all know this verse, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. It's, you contemplate those things. You see those things. You take in the beauty and you do not praise the thing. That's what the world wants to do. Is instead of it leading to pointing to God and our eyes being lifted upward to him, they worship the thing that was created. That's right. But it should be, let us worship and bow down. And we should be praying, like, the Lord, you know, when we see the thunderstorms or we see, you know, um, just the, the things that take place in the world as far as, like, you know, hurricanes and so forth, as devastating as they are, it should still lead us to worship and just the power that is on display and things like that. Oh, I thought you had a hand. Okay. So when it comes to, you know, you had mentioned the incarnation. You know, these others are good. By providential, just to be clear, it's really looking at the acts of God, you know, in history. Miracles and things of that nature. The incarnation, that is the height of all revelation. This is the word of God become flesh. Um, this is, as some have called it, the consummate mode of revelation. And this is what we see in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You want to know the nature of God? Look at the Son. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. It is in the incarnation that God comes down to us in a way that was never done before. And it's amazing to think when he returns, like he's coming down to where then we will be with him and dwell with him, commune with him forever. So when we think of, so these are different categories by which you can see how he's revealed himself. But even specifically within these, there's the different 
you know, ways um, in which he has done this as well. There's the name of God or the names of God and how he, sh- how he conveys himself to people. Names are powerful. Uh, there are people that rack their brains about what they're going to name their child because it's that important. Because names have meaning. It's no different with the Lord. His name carries meaning. His name carries weight. Uh, It is by the names of God that we have the very being of God revealed. This is what Bavink says. As God reveals himself, so is he. In his names, he himself becomes knowable to us. What about the attributes of God? We did a study last year where I think Landon and Lynn were breaking that down. So if you, we're not going to get into all of them. We can't really get into any of them. But if you want that, it's going to be on our website. Um, you can go back and listen to that. But his attributes. What is an attribute? That's right. So the very like, basic definition is qualities, characteristics of who God is in his whole being. It's not part of him's holy, part of him's loving, part of, okay? There's this, one of the attributes is the simplicity of God in which all of him is fully loving, all of him is immutable, and so on and so forth. But these are different ways that we can um, know who God is that he's immutable. That should provide us great comfort and assurance. This is actually what uh, Beaky says. I couldn't rephrase it. Um, but he says this, each attribute is like a grip for the hand of faith to cling to. So it is amazing. God doesn't just say, I'm God and worship me. But he gives us who he truly is in all of these different ways where it is a full revelation of who he is. As much as he can, and as much as we as finite people can comprehend, um, that's what we see. And so when we look at this, what we ultimately see between general, special, the work of the Spirit, and the lives of those whom he's called, um, when we think of his names and his attributes, his nature, the fact that he's triune is an essential aspect of who he is because that's what allows him to communicate himself. If you want to read up on that, I suggest looking at Bavink and his section on the Trinity um, but what we see is that it's thorough, it's complete, and it's sufficient. We have no need for anything else with how God has revealed himself. Uh, his revelation is what we need, and all three are needed. General revelation, right, manifests the glory of God. Special revelation provides us with much uh, needed revelation that general revelation doesn't give us. Specifically, who's the Savior? how to be saved, what is needed, what has he done? And then, of course, applied revelation is that illumination by the Spirit to recognize these things are right, uh, to truly understand um, things the way that we ought. Um, so, yeah, any questions, comments? Mm. Well, it's good if you know none of us are, you know, any good. But I do know that, like, you know, so they can know 
Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's even what, you know, Calvin had said, where it's like, we look at those things, or we look at ourselves even, and we think, how did I get these gifts or these abilities? Um, it should point us to God. The problem is, is that it doesn't, all, it doesn't necessarily do that, right? Where he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm wretched. Well, he's not understanding that or right. Because if he did, it would be, I need to be saved. I need to be... Um, he would see what, it, what he's headed towards. And so as much as this is needed and this is glorious, from, a, from our perspective, it should always lead to worship. And from those who are saved, it does. Um, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. You, we need the special revelation. What is amazing to me as I looked into this and considered these different um, aspects of how he's revealed himself, like I said, it is thorough. It wasn't just a, here's a little bit. I mean, he is proclaimed himself to his creation we have no excuse even as you were saying i mean not only just from general revelation but especially we have his word in our hand in our phone and so forth i mean there's no reason by his grace that we should not know him and be pushing to know him more we should strive to know him so okay let's go worship